This podcast was recorded Tuesday, February 23rd at 1 p.m. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. What have we learned over the last year of the pandemic? What can we expect from the new coronavirus strains? And how will vaccines impact our future? All that and more on this episode of The Healthiest You. It's Mike and Steph from B104. It's officially been more than a year since the coronavirus has been in the U.S., so today's episode is all about COVID-19. We'll take a look back to discuss what the medical community has learned over the past year and talk about what we can expect in the future. You know, one thing I've learned the last year is about the COVID-19. 15. Oh, yeah. Or maybe 20, possibly 25. Uh, It's about slowing down, spending more time at home. It's been a really crazy year. Yeah. Kids learning at home, parents trying to teach their kids at home. All that and and so much more. And and I don't know about you, Mike, but, you know, as much as, as you've slowed down, it feels like the pace that you now maintain to do all those other things, working from home, having your kids study at home, seems to accelerate aspects of your life as well. Yeah. And also the, the missing of hanging out with people. Yeah. That's a big one. You just want to hug everybody now. So we have Lehigh Valley Health Network Department of Medicine Chair, Dr. Tim Friel with us today to discuss all things COVID. Dr. Friel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, let's get right to it, doctor. Is there anything outside of healthcare that you've learned during this pandemic? It's a great question, and uh, I feel like I learn something new every single day. Uh, this this pandemic has been a, a new experience for us every single step of the way. So, you know, we're going to talk a lot about the science and what's happening medically uh, throughout the course of today's podcast. But, uh, you know, I look at the things I've learned about myself and my family. I, I'm, I've learned, I think, to appreciate many of the things that I was taking for granted. I know the things that I'm looking forward to resuming and doing again. And, um, I also know that there's going to probably be some things that I look at differently and do differently uh, as we move forward. So, you know, I like to always remember and be able to reflect on uh, the the positives that have come through this. There's been a lot of negatives along the way that I think we all dwell on, but uh, I I think through introspection, I think there's going to be take-home messages for each and every one of us about the things that uh, we're going to look at differently, appreciate more, and... um, look forward to uh, in the future and as we define new normalcy um, in the days and weeks to come. I'm going to ask you to look a little bit in the past as well as the present. What was it like to work in healthcare in March of 2020 and how does that compare to March of 2021? I have always loved being a doctor and uh, so it's been such a great and rewarding profession. I think for me, the pandemic has really reinforced my vocational commitment to the work that I do. I I really feel that it is for me (laughs) solidified this whole notion that I'm doing the things that I was meant to do. Uh, And um, I believe that I will look back on this time, this last year, the time in the pandemic as a physician and a leader uh, in a hospital system as both the most challenging and toughest time of my career. But uh, I would also like to think that it is going to certainly be the most rewarding time in my career. Doctor, what are some of the treatments for someone who has COVID-19? So when we think about that, Mike, so much has happened in the course of the year. So we have to remember, this is a new infection that no one knew anything about. It was a relative of other coronaviruses that have been around. There have been five, what we call traditional 
uh, seasonal coronaviruses that have caused colds for years and years and years. And then there were two other kind of stragglers related to those traditional types that caused a lot of havoc. Uh, the first SARS outbreak that uh, impacted uh, the, the, not only the United States, but globally, especially in Asia. And then a little more recently, MERS or uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. But uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, really kind of was a, 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 certainly for us a once-in-a-lifetime, hopefully a once-in-a-lifetime uh, event for us. And uh, didn't know anything about it. Didn't have great strategies or treatments for uh, coronavirus up until that point. Uh, we've, when you look at what science has accomplished through clinical research and clinical trials, we've now learned that uh, medications that have been available like dexamethasone and steroids actually have an impact and uh, improve mortality in people who are hospitalized and need oxygen or ventilators. Uh, we know that other medicines that we've kind of looked at for other things like remdesivir have some impact on coronavirus. Um, so that's been really, really great. So we're continuing to get more and more of this information. Uh, and then there's been new medications like monoclonal antibodies that actually, if given early, can help prevent sequelae and progression of the disease. So, um, and then we're gonna talk a little bit more about the vaccine that can actually prevent uh, the complications of COVID-19. So we've come such a long way and gained a greater appreciation for how medications can really impact this. And the fact that this was done in such a short period of time to me is, is still uh, awe-inspiring and, and miraculous. It is amazing. Face masks have become a part of our daily attire. I know certainly you shouldn't leave the house without one. By now, everyone knows that you need to wear them, but I've heard that we should now be layering our masks. So is that a true statement? So masks, it's, it's such an important topic and it's one that uh, you know, certainly generates lots of conversation. And there's extreme feelings along the, uh, along the spectrum about what people think about masks. When I talk about masks, I think about it in this terms. I would be really, really happy and excited if everyone did embrace wearing a mask uh, when they're around others. I think it's incredibly important. We know that it helps you and it helps the people you're around. It reduces the likelihood that you could transmit coronavirus infection uh, if you're around someone who's susceptible. So that's great. A lot of recent data looking at, do we wear one mask over the other mask, so two masks, et cetera. To me, it comes down to a few things, uh, fit uh, and layers. Uh, we've always been advocating that, you know, clearly not all masks are created equal, but if you have one good, well-fitting mask and it has more than one layer, so a cloth mask with two, three layers, like most of the ones that you're currently that are currently available, those work pretty good. Uh, fit is so important. So I think we've all seen it. You you know go into a room with hundred people wearing a mask. There's a hundred different fits. Some are you know incredibly well fit, formed, no no holes, gaps, etc. That's great. And that's the ideal. And then there's the others that are around like below the chin, and uh, you know have some holes in. And you're like, yeah, that's probably not a good mask. And and you're right. So. When it comes to you know wearing masks, I encourage people, get one that fits you well, that stays up, and get one that has at least more than one layer. If you're particularly concerned or highly susceptible to complications related to COVID-19, then if you want to do a double mask, then that's great. It provides you more protection. So more layers are better. Better fit is what we're shooting for. Uh, doctor, it sounds like coronavirus is primarily spread through droplets in the air. 
our respiratory system. Uh, does that mean we aren't likely to get it from touching contaminated object like a doorknob or a desktop or the grocery store or something like that? Yeah. So Mike, this was a big issue, especially in the beginning of the pandemic when we just didn't know how it was uh, going to be transmitted. So SARS-CoV-2, it's become very clear that the predominant mechanism of transmission is respiratory droplets that are expelled into the air by someone who's either symptomatic with disease or pre-symptomatic or even asymptomatic. So if you have the virus, it's replicating, you can expel it into the air and people who are around you within the environment can breathe in those droplets. That's 99% of transmission, clearly. The role that surface contamination plays is felt to be incredibly small, uh, but there's always a possibility. We know for other viruses like flu, it does happen. And it's one of the important reasons that we tell people when you're touching stuff, before you bring your hands to your face, your eyes, those mucosal surfaces that can be exposed to the virus, wash them, clean them. And that's why we've been talking. It's been our mantra in the beginning, clean your hands, you know, 15, 15 seconds, you know, uh, sing happy birthday, you know, do, do whatever. Uh, soap and water or uh, a good hand sanitizer is what we um, ascribe to. This meticulous cleaning down of all surfaces or shopping and cleaning down all of your grocery goods, probably not necessary. And in the beginning, I think some of that guidance was driven by the fact that we just didn't know. And we were using our understanding about how other viruses behave to make decisions about how to advise people. But science is iterative. You learn more as you go. And I think that's been the great thing for us, realizing that the, the surface contamination isn't a prime driver of this. So I'm not saying for people to go out and not clean stuff, good Cleaning of surfaces is really, really important, but the predominant driver is really that respiratory droplets. And that's why we go back to six feet or as much distance as possible, wearing good fitting masks, keeping your hands clean whenever possible so you're not exposing or bringing viruses in close uh, proximity to your mouth, your nose, your eyes. Those are the gold standards of keeping yourself protected against COVID-19. What did the newly discovered strains mean for our community? Yeah, so strains are something that are on everyone's mind. So when we talk about strains, lots of different uh, names for this. So we'll talk about viral mutations or mutants, viral variants or the new viral strains. So what this really means is that most viruses, they change over time. Uh, you know, they all have a genetic code. Uh, in this case, it's, uh, you know, the genetic material determines the shape of the protein, including the proteins on the surface of the virus. We call them spike proteins. So over time, there's been some changes. And some of those changes have made it easier for the virus to spread from person to person. Um, and it's those it's actually not just one mutation, but it's a series of mutations that um, have allowed the virus to spread a little more easily and perhaps might make the virus a little bit more impactful, meaning that uh, people who get infected with these variants might have worse outcomes or a higher risk of you know, being hospitalized or dying. So we've seen three main variants that are getting a lot of media attention. There's the United Kingdom variant, which is the predominant variant that everyone's been talking about, but also two important variants, one from uh, South, South America or Brazil, and then there's the South African variant. Uh, in this state, we've, uh, we've seen evidence of the United Kingdom variant. At least 30 cases have been described. We know that these variants are more transmissible, up to 50% more likely to spread from one person to another. Uh, and there's some data now out of Britain that suggests that the mortality or fatality rate is slightly higher. Many where 
from about 20 to 30 percent uh, more fatal. So, you know, that, that for us is a concerning thing. There's good data to suggest that the predominant strain circulating in the United States will be soon become the UK variant. It will replace the more traditional variant that's been uh, transmitted across the US up until this time. So for us, it's, it's an area of concern because if it is more transmissible, we worry about what can happen in communities that are hard impacted. Right now, Florida seems to be the state that's had most evidence of viral variants. Uh, so we're keeping a very, very close eye because it, it, it's one of those kind of wild cards in the next few months that I think really needs careful attention. And it's why we say that despite some of the really good and encouraging, thing, encouraging things that are happening, vaccine is here, numbers are going down, that we, uh, this is one of the, the hurdles that we're going to need to get over to get us to the finish line. Doctor, you said these strains have been found in the U.S. Uh, are the vaccines effective against the new strains? Yeah, so that's the you know million dollar question on everyone's mind right now. So to date, if you look at the two authorized vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, there is um, evidence to suggest that the the immune response that's generated in those who get these vaccines is effective at reducing the likelihood of getting infected with the UK variant. The data with the South uh, African variant and the Brazilian variant, not as much data. Uh, it might be that the overall effectiveness is going to be a little bit less. So we're starting to see that in data that's coming out from countries that have been heavily impacted by this. So South Africa, Brazil, et cetera. So uh, overall effectiveness of the vaccines might um be reduced a little bit. But you know, the one thing I want to remind folks, and, and this is where we're doing a podcast now, so you can't see how excited I get when I talk about vaccines. But you know, as cool as the meds I've talked about earlier are, the fact that we have two authorized vaccines that are effective at reducing likelihood of people getting infected with this new virus less than one year after the first fatality in this country is absolutely just the coolest thing, I think, in modern science. It really, really is. And we have to help people understand what efficacy means. So all the different uh, vaccines that have been looked at, they defined efficacy in different ways in the trial. So, you know, for Pfizer and Moderna, it was really, can the vaccines, people who get the vaccines, does it prevent them from developing symptomatic disease with a positive test? So that took all comers. You have a cold, a cough, you know, maybe a little bit of a fever or no fever, but a positive test, that's a case. If you're hospitalized and severely ill with pneumonia, that's also a case. So across the board, 95% efficacy at reducing the likelihood of you getting any of those type of, of, of manifestations of COVID, it's pretty incredible. But the most incredible thing, if you look at all the vaccine data from the big clinical trials for Pfizer, Moderna, and then the three other vaccines that are going to be vetted by this uh, FDA soon. Uh, so Johnson & Johnson, um, um, Novavax, and AstraZeneca's vaccine. Over 77,000 uh, individuals participated in those trials who actually got vaccine. There's another 77,000 who got placebo. But if you looked at all those who got the vaccine, none of them died. No people who were vaccinated died of COVID-19. If you would take that same 77,000, just, you know, and, and, and look at what we know about mortality and hospitalization, et cetera, you would have predicted that at least 200 of them would have died. 
So that's just how good these vaccines really work. And if we can, even if they're not effective or as effective at controlling or reducing the risk of someone getting sick and developing some symptoms from COVID, if it can keep you out of the hospital and ultimately prevent you from dying and keep you out of a morgue, we've done a phenomenal thing. And that's really, for me, what's transforming uh, this pandemic. And it's the most important tool we have to get our, ourselves out of this. You addressed some of the other vaccines that are uh, potentially coming down the line. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and how would you say it's different from that of Pfizer and Moderna? Yeah, so uh, great question. So uh, J&J, the FDA is actually reviewing the data for Johnson & Johnson on Friday, February 26th. And uh, they'll be making recommendations. What helps J&J stand out, it doesn't work the same uh, way that the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines do. They are mRNA vaccines. So uh, that's the mRNA is the signal or uh, the directions that we're sending to cells to help generate an immune response and make proteins that stimulate our immune response. This one uses a different strategy. It actually puts the instructions inside a different virus. It uses an adenovirus vector. So it's pretty cool stuff as well. Uh, but it um, it stimulates the immune system in a different way. Why J&J is really intriguing is that uh, Johnson & Johnson is seeking from the FDA authorization to use a single shot. Uh, so the other two are two shots. For Pfizer, it's shot day one, and then you repeat three weeks later. For Moderna, it's day one, repeat four weeks later. This one would be a single shot. So for groups that are harder to target, uh, for groups that might not have same access, uh, it's a really great strategy. And it doesn't have some of the crazy, pesky, uh, ultra low temperature requirements for storage, transportation, as much longer stability. So it's going to make it easier to vaccinate people, especially in resource poor areas. So that's what I think is really, really great and important. And it's just going to be another tool for us. So, you know, three vaccines are going to be better than two vaccines. And it's just going to be more availability and a greater number of people who can get vaccinated in a quicker period of time. Uh, Dr. Friel, you were talking earlier about how excited you were about this new vaccine. And, and, and it, I, I imagine from a medical standpoint, this is quite exciting. But some people have concerns about the safety of the vaccine because it came out so quickly. Uh, how can we make sure that it is indeed safe? Yeah. So, uh, you know, thanks for asking that question because it's certainly something on everyone's mind. And I, I think it's really important for folks like me in healthcare to understand what is on the minds of individuals. And I encourage, whether I'm talking to a patient or I'm talking to someone in my community, I want them to be asking us questions. Uh, I, I, and, and those questions are okay. I am a strong believer and proponent in vaccines and the power of vaccines. As an infectious disease doc, I want to do everything I can uh, to uh, prevent complications from uh, infectious diseases. So this vaccine, I think, is such an important tool. But I do want people to be comfortable. And I understand that this is something new. And for some people, it takes time. Uh, for them to be comfortable. So one of the common questions we get is the one that Mike posed is, you know, did this happen too quickly? And I would say, you know, I think I'm marveling at how quickly it happened, but I want to reassure people that um, this isn't because things were rushed. So the mRNA technology, so I'll talk about Pfizer and J&J &J and even the, the vector-based vaccine strategies of AstraZeneca and uh, uh, Johnson & Johnson, 
they've been in development. People have been working on these for years and years for other indications, not necessarily coronavirus or COVID-19. They were looking at how these virus and, and, and how these platforms can be used to improve vaccinations uh, for other common viruses and bacteria that are uh, out there and, and impacting people throughout the globe. So, you know, fast forward, we find ourselves in 2020 in the midst of, you know, the largest pandemic that we had seen in a century. And, um, we had to make some decisions about what would likely be the quickest targets that we could utilize uh, that could be mass produced and available to the public. And you know, these platforms really offered a great, great opportunity. So that work, the preclinical stuff had all been done. So some people think like this just idea popped into someone's head at the start of the pandemic. No, we are capitalizing on years and years of, of bench research and, and scientific investment in these strategies that have ultimately paid off for us. Then the what we call the important phase one and phase two and phase three, where you introduce and you start with small numbers of individuals, you vaccinate to see what happens to their immune system and, and how they tolerate it, uh, and then go to bigger groups. They started and they happened very, very quickly. They were overlapping, but constantly looking at data from the smaller trials as they were building. They were preparing for phase two and phase three uh, to be done at the same time. Uh, and there was a very smart decision that was made early in this that you know most vaccines, they go through all the clinical trials, then they vet and they follow people for a very long period of time, and then they get approved, and then they start manufacturing because pharmaceutical companies don't wanna take the risk that you know many vaccines end up not working. So they didn't want to take the risk that, um, you know, to spend a lot of money producing something that's not going to come to fruition. So uh, there was an investment with support from government, uh, the government as well, to allow them to start manufacturing uh, and only release if the data supported efficacy and safety. And, and that's why we found ourselves in this situation where we had vaccine available in mid-December, which was you know earlier than I think anyone had anticipated. So no corners were cut. And again, I think that safety data, it's been transparently shared with folks. It's available. It's on the FDA websites for people to review, et cetera. So we encourage people to you know ask those questions. I want them to be comfortable because as I said, for us to get out of this we need enough people to be accepting of vaccination uh, to really help us achieve herd immunity. With the understanding that everyone reacts differently, what side effects should people expect after receiving their COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah, so, um, you know, Steph, this is a, an important thing and it's, you people will, when they're scheduling, they wanna know what to expect. Everyone is different, so I do remind them uh, that. Uh, but uh, the things that we're seeing in the clinical trials are certainly what we are seeing in clinical practice now. So with first shot, you know, I let people know you can expect that the arm that you get your shot in is going to be sore. Uh, and that's pretty, people who've had other vaccines, you know, whether it's flu or other things that they've gotten, they recognize sore arm is not uncommon. Uh, but sore arm is, is very, very common. So I prepare people. You're going to ache a little bit, not terrible, but you're going to ache. And then there's other what we call reactogenic side effects that are, um, you know, anticipated. And they're actually a sign that your immune system is responding to the vaccines. So that's the, I think the good thing. So I tell people side effects aren't bad. They just mean that your immune system is responding. So that could be fatigue, it could be headache. Uh, it could be muscle aches what we call myalgias. Uh, those things are not uncommon uh, afterwards. And some people develop fevers. Those are signs and markers that the immune system is being stimulated 
and uh, that uh, you're generating an immune response. Those side effects tend to be a little more common with second, the second dose. So that's your booster dose. So your immune system's already seen it and now it's re-exposed and it really revs up. Uh, things we've learned, older patients tend to have less side effects. So you know that's, I think, one of the good things. But the bottom line, and a lot of people ask this, well, if I don't get side effects, is that a bad thing? Heck no. So th that's the really great thing. So the elderly population, especially the group that's been, you know, the targeted for early vaccines, 75 and older, likelihood of side effects in the short term, very, very small. But their immune reaction and response to the vaccine, really, really great. You know, in general, as good as people at younger years. So that to me is the really, really encouraging thing. Doctor, this is a very important question. Yeah. When can we get back to some kind of normal life? Like maybe hanging out at a concert or yeah. going to a club or having a party and not worried about having too many people there. When can this happen? Uh, yeah, you know, Mike, I miss movies. I miss restaurants. There's so many things I miss. I, I don't know what... Uh, what is normal? I, I, I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I think we're going to be redefining normal for us as we move forward. I think we're getting closer and closer. So I remain an optimist despite the, the challenges that the year's thrown our way. Uh, I am optimistic that we are, we are still making strides and I can see that light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, it's not going to happen. You know, a lot of people think, oh, it's going to be like flipping a light switch. It's on, it's now off and it's done. This is going to kind of peter out slowly or kind of fade a little bit into the background. I don't think coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2 will disappear. I think it's going to become part of the background. And I do think as we see more immunity develop, either through infection or vaccination, it's just going to kind of be there in the background. And, uh, you know, our vaccinations are going to uh, help protect us you know, as we move forward, we're going to be looking to see whether or not people will need a booster, like we need to almost revaccinate people for flu every year because the virus is changing. But we'll see. But I, I, I can't give you a date, Mike. But uh, I, I think you know, as we get closer to summer, I think some things are going to start to feel a little bit better, a little bit more kind of like the old, good old days, as we define. Uh, and then there's going to be things that I, I, I don't think will go away or change. You know, I don't know if Zoom's ever going to leave entirely. And, uh, but, uh, you know, getting kids back to school, getting, you know, people out and uh, to sports events and concerts, we're all looking forward to it. And, and it is coming, uh, but we need to be patient. And I think we need to be thoughtful as we move forward. We're getting close. Let's just not blow it on, on our way to, to get to that destination. I just never looked forward to 2019 so much in my entire life. <laughs> um, can you explain why certain groups can't get the vaccine right now? Yeah, so it's a simple, uh, Steph, it's a, it, it comes down to just simple economics, supply and demand. There is just not enough vaccine to go around and get into the arms of everyone who wants it. The fact that we have so many people who are excited and eager about getting vaccine, that I, makes me excited. I, I, I really am. We, we, we need that enthusiasm. We just now need to back that up with getting a supply. It's been so frustrating for all of us. Uh, we, we can give vaccine a lot more quickly. We just can't get vaccine. And we have to rec recognize that you know, there's a rate limiting step here, production and then distribution of the vaccine and the um, manufacturers of the two authorized vaccines in the US are doing everything they can to upregulate and upproduce as much vaccine as possible. And 
all of us are waiting to receive it and get it into the arms of individuals. What we've targeted first are those groups that were felt to be at the highest risk, those who work in healthcare, those who are frontline, taking care of the sickest of the sick, uh, you know, ambulance drivers, um, people who are working in long-term care facilities that have just been devastated uh, by um, COVID-19, the people who live in those long-term care facilities, um, and then those over the age of 75. And now that's been expanded in Pennsylvania to include those 65 and older, as well as those between the ages of 16 and 64 with medical conditions that put them at high risk for bad outcomes from COVID-19. So those are the groups we're targeting. It doesn't mean that other people aren't important and shouldn't get vaccinated. We're just trying to really get the vaccine into the arms of those who are going to benefit the most, those who are most likely to end up hospitalized, those who are most likely to end up dying. Um, more vaccine will come. And I, I really do believe we are going to get to a date in the coming weeks and months where we, 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 you know, all the people who are really, really eager, they're going to have been vaccinated. And then we're going to have to deal with the group that's a little more hesitant. And as we talked about, that's the group that we need to continue to educate. That's the group that's kind of staying back a little bit, watching to see what happens, uh, waiting for more data, waiting to develop greater comfort. And then, you know, then our, our philosophy and our approach is going to need to change. We're going to have to really focus on community education, talking, dialogue, helping building confidence and, and, you know, whether, you know, no matter what communities we're talking about based on age, based upon where you live, uh, based upon your educational background, all of those different factors that can impact the reason that people are more accepting or less accepting of vaccines. Uh, doctor, you mentioned the people who should be getting vaccines. Is there anyone who should not receive a vaccine? And are there certain health conditions that prevent someone from being able to receive a vaccine? Yeah, so uh, right now the vaccines are authorized. The two that are currently available are authorized uh, for those 16 and older. So that's for uh, Pfizer. So everyone 16 and older were uh, included in their data. For Moderna, it's only 18 and older because they didn't include anyone in that age room range of 16 to 17. Uh, more trials are being performed right now in younger groups, going down to 12 uh, now for Pfizer, and there's planned, I think, to start including five and up in, in future clinical trials. To, so we're going to get more data for that group. So there's some age restrictions. Um, we know for the two mRNA vaccines that uh, anyone who's ever had an allergic or anaphylactic reaction to another mRNA vaccine, so that would have been through clinical trial because these are the two that are first, they should, they should not get vaccinated. Or if you had anaphylaxis or a severe reaction to your first dose, you won't necessarily continue with your second dose. And then there are two ingredients, you know, poly uh, PEG, polyethylene glycol is one of the carriers uh, in the mRNA vaccines. So people who have a known history of allergy to PEG, PEG or polyethylene glycol can't get va the vaccine. But if you had another, if you had a history of other allergic reactions, whether it's to other vaccines, whether it's to antibiotics or other things, that's not a contraindication. We encourage people to discuss that with either your allergist or your primary care doc or a doc who knows you well to help guide you. Uh, you know, for example, I can't take penicillins, but that doesn't mean I can't take the vaccine. And I actually have been vaccinated and did quite fine. So we ask people just talk to your providers, talk to the people to know you, uh, who know you, and they'll be able to help uh, point you in the right direction. 
So you're eligible, you meet all the marks for getting the COVID-19 vaccination. Uh, What about delaying other vaccinations that you might get or perhaps also uh, delaying a scheduled mammogram? Yeah, so a great question. So the uh, CDC currently recommends that uh, we delay giving the COVID-19 vaccine for at least two weeks in people who've received other vaccines. So that's really, we don't want the immunologic response to be impacted uh, by the immunologic reaction you're getting from another vaccine. There's, you know, to be quite honest, there's no data that showed that, you know, people who were vaccinated with, let's say, the flu vaccine or the shingles vaccine in a week before that it impacted their response to a COVID vaccine. It's based on what we know from other vaccines. So it's a recommendation. It's not an absolute contraindication. So we really tell people, you know, wait that two weeks. And when you get your COVID-19 vaccine, you should wait two weeks before getting other vaccines. So if you were due for your uh, pneumonia vaccine or your flu vaccine or your shingles vaccine, wait two weeks after your COVID-19. Um, the recommendations as far as mammogram are a little more recent, and it's out of recognition of the fact that uh, women who've been vaccinated, uh, one of the potential side effects on the side that you get your vaccine, the goal is it stimulates an immune response. So we talked about the achy arm. Well, some people develop some lymph node enlargement on the side that they got the vaccine. It's you know not in the uh, majority of people, but it happens in a, in a, a small number Many people won't know or they won't feel, but when you have a mammogram, it actually gets good images and you can see those changes in the lymph nodes and they might appear bigger than they did a year ago if this is your annual mammogram. So um, lymph nodes are one of the things that all uh, people who interpret mammograms look at. So recognizing that this could happen, you know, we're encouraging people to delay uh, for you know, at least four weeks after their vaccine, getting their mammogram, because we don't want it to lead to any false findings. That lymphadenopathy, if you get it, is transient. So it's not gonna last for a long time. And so we tell people, you know, between four and six weeks, those lymph nodes should be back to regular size and you can proceed with your mammogram. So this is new recommendations uh, from, um, you know, uh, the, the physicians who perform mammograms in their national society, et cetera, to cut down the likelihood that people will have a false positive mammogram. Doctor, in the last year, been a lot of new developments. Everything seems to be changing very quickly. What other developments do you see coming in the future? So I think hopefully just more and more good stuff. And I think we're all due for more and more good things. I think we're going to continue to learn more about different therapies that work. We're also going to learn about some of the things that that don't work. There was a lot of enthusiasm, for example, in the early uh, months about different uh, medications. You know, first it was hydroxychloroquine that you know really didn't pan out, and then there's just even stuff looking at vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, things that have been postulated that you know uh, could help. And you know, now we've just gotten some recent clinical trial data, you know, randomized controlled trials that show that unfortunately things like zinc and vitamin C didn't help that much. So, you know, that does help us. It learns, it helps, we, we learn, we, we prepare for kind of, you know, how we're going to treat others. But I think we're going to get more and more information and data about other therapies. Uh, we're learning more and more about monoclonal antibodies and earlier use can be really impactful in people who've been exposed to the virus or might be in the earliest days of their infection. Uh, and I think we're going to get a lot of more exciting information about vaccines and durability of the immune 
some protection uh, that we get. And, and so we're gonna be continuing to learn. I, I think I started this saying there's, I, I've learned something new every single day. And I think we as society has lear have learned something new every day. And that learning is gonna continue. We're gonna continue to look back as we look forward. And uh, it's just gonna continue to make us better prepared uh, for dealing with uh, you know, patients who are exposed in the future. And you know, knock on, you know, if it does happen again, it's gonna help us be better prepared the next time something like this might come our way. And you know, hopefully we, we get a few years off before that happens. Uh, but uh, like I said, that learning science, science is iterative and, and we're gonna continue to learn and, and grow from um, the stuff that we've seen and the trials that we've done and, and, and just you know, all the other experiences that we've had. Dr. Frail, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, it's been a great time and I you know, hope I was able to answer your questions well. Indeed. Thanks, Doc. If you want to enter the queue for COVID-19 vaccination, create a My LVHN account. Learn more at lvhn.org slash mylvhn. Until next time, be safe, be smart, be, be the, the healthiest, healthiest you. you.